Good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Um, Our studies uh, in John's Gospel have brought us to chapter 6 of the book, and you can find it on page 891 of the Pew Bible. It's a long passage, over 70 verses long, but it begins with perhaps the best known of Jesus' miracles, the so-called feeding of the 5,000. So let's get underway uh, by reading from John chapter 6, and we're going to read uh, the first 10 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. That is a truly lovely story, isn't it? Normally a group of 10,000 hungry men, women and children, it would look like the beginning of a riot. But we see them all sitting down in ordered groups on the green grass, eating lovely fresh bread and fish, until they were full up. A few minutes earlier the situation had looked hopeless. Philip the businessman had got out his spreadsheet and concluded that there just weren't enough resources to solve the problem. But God's economy doesn't work like that. So we see the Lord Jesus take this small boy's lunch in his hands, raise his eyes in gratitude to heaven, and give thanks. And then he starts to distribute the resources to his disciples. But miraculously, the bread and the fish just keep multiplying in his hands. Soon everyone in that vast crowd had more than enough to eat. They had been strengthened and nourished for their journey home. Now this story is followed up by a, a second account, uh, a second miracle. Uh, yes, when Jesus walks on water. Now, but for now we're going to leave that passage aside. We're only going to return to it at the very end of our study. And the rest of the long chapter is a set of arguments about what happened on that hillside uh, outside Galilee. Everyone knew that Jesus had performed a spectacular miracle in feeding 5,000 men plus their families. But what did the miracle mean? What was its significance? And the big conversation about the feeding miracle really starts in verse 25. But it isn't until we get to verse 35 that the Lord Jesus makes his famous claim, I am the bread of life. And the remaining verses uh, are punctuated by 
two major objections that people have to that claim. So if you glance at verse 41, just for a moment, you'll see it says, So the Jews grumbled at him. Then look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves. When you get to the, towards the end of the chapter, even the disciples are struggling with our Lord's teaching. If you look at verse 60, some of his disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Now, we can use those punctuation marks to divide our passage into five blocks, as I have shown on the screen. Or as Alex has shown on the screen. So we have three major blocks. Christ is the bread of life. Then the need to recognize Christ and the need to receive Christ. And those three big points are bracketed by an initial and a final block. We open with the danger of missing the sign and we finish with the way, the blessing of believing the sign. Now I'm just going to leave that structure up uh, so that you can navigate your way around the passage as I talk. But let's revert for a moment to the account of the miracle itself. Imagine you were one of those thousands of people having that picnic on the hillside. You've just seen this amazing miracle. But what are you going to make of it? Well, the passage tells us what the people who were there thought of it. They wanted to make Jesus king by force. Well, that's nice, you might think. But as you read through the first block, that's in verses 25 through 35, 34, we see that everyone had misunderstood what the Lord Jesus was doing. I had a friend in England, and he claims this story is true. He said that he once watched an ATM machine in a high street spew out banknotes uh, without stopping. The money just kept pouring out. And these people regarded the Lord in that light. Bread for life, they thought to themselves. This man is the best food dispenser on the planet. And it's all free. Wonderful. Could it get any better? Let's make him king. John doesn't use the word miracle very often. He, he's much fonder of the word sign. A miracle is that moment when God injects a new event into nature for a moral purpose. So the miracle is always like a signpost. It points to a spiritual truth. But these people were in real danger of missing the sign completely. All they wanted was an endless dispenser of sardo bread. Well, I don't know if it was sardo bread, but some form of bread. So in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on these ancient Galileans, because our own culture is even more materialistic than theirs. I guess it's time to bring the big idea in this chapter out into the open. Why do you do what you do? Why do we spend our time and energy and talent the way we spend them? If someone followed you around with a clipboard last week, well that would be a very creepy thing, but leaving creepiness aside, if they noted how you invested your time and your energy, what would they conclude about your values? I'm not giving some pious scold here. I'm just raising an interesting question. Why do we do what we do? 
Now, of course, the Lord Jesus is not criticizing honest labor here. The rent has to be paid. Fridge has to have some food in it. Work is good. But there is something wrong if our lives are entirely materialistic, isn't there? If all there is to life is work, sleep and eat, repeat until you die, then something has gone wrong. So I introduced the big idea by asking you this question. How do you nourish your soul? What feeds your moral sensibilities? What enriches your imagination? What enlivens your spirit? If those questions intrigue you, then John chapter 6 has something really profound to teach you. The people Jesus was talking to were all Jews, of course. And Jewish people knew that Jesus' miracle pointed back to an amazing moment in their own nation's history. In fact, they had all just celebrated that moment at their Passover celebrations, uh, which verse 4 told us was at hand. 1,300 years earlier, God had rescued his people from a life of slavery in the land of Egypt. They had sheltered under the blood of the Passover lamb on that fateful night when God's judgment fell in Egypt. Then they'd crossed the Red Sea and started this long journey to the promised land. But how would this huge group of ex-slaves survive in a desert? There weren't a lot of Tesco superstores around Sinai. Well, God gave them bread. It was a strange type of bread. It was called manna, and it fell from heaven. Little drops of uh, liquid falling from the sky that soon dried out and formed into sweet-tasting flakes uh, that could be made into bread. Now, that story about manna, the bread from heaven, was told to every Jewish child from their infancy. So everyone who saw the Lord Jesus' miracle would have linked it immediately in their minds to the bread from heaven that had come down in Moses' day. So let's now read the first block, uh, verses 35 through 40, to see how the Lord Jesus uses this idea of bread from heaven to explain his own miracle. So we'll pick the story up in verse 35. This is the first of our three major blocks. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Like those ancient Israelites plodding through the wilderness, we are on a journey. We're not sitting on some wheel of life going round in circles. We're part of a story which has a beginning, a middle and an end. And Jesus Christ says to us this morning, I am the bread of life. Notice he does not say, I am the giver of bread. He doesn't say, I give you food. He says, I am the food. Spiritual food, of course. Christ is the means for the maintaining of our spiritual life right through life's journey to bring us safe to heaven. Now, think what that claim means. 
The Lord Jesus is not an abstract idea. He is a real person. And somehow, in a way that this chapter is going to reveal, the person of Christ nourishes our souls. It is he who enlivens our spirit and enriches the mind. We live in a world full of emaciated souls and starved minds. Like an abandoned dog, we search in the rubbish tips of this culture for something to fill the void inside. But Christ says that whoever comes to him will not hunger, nor will they ever thirst. Now that's some promise, isn't it? If it is to have credibility, then the offer being made to us here has to be different from the experience of those ancient Israelites in the wilderness. You see, they did get their daily manna from heaven. But most of them died in the desert. They never made it into the promised land. Will that be our experience too? One day we're saying none but Christ can satisfy. A few years later, we're completely cold to the whole idea of spiritual things. Some Christians are tortured by a lack of assurance. They are terrified that any day now, the bread might run out. But this passage contains a repeated assurance that our experience will be different from the wilderness journey of ancient Israel. If you have your Bible in front of you, look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And if that isn't enough, he repeats the promise in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now on what basis can we be so sure of eternal destiny? We sang earlier, didn't we? He will hold you fast. But on what basis do we have that assurance? Let me talk into some soul tortured by doubt and a lack of assurance right now. These verses that we've just read together give us the answer. For whoever comes to me, says Christ, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. On Thursday night, I was reminded of the time in my own life when someone explained these verses to me. Thursday night, as many of you know, we held a thanksgiving service in this church for the life of Professor David Gooding. David Gooding was perhaps the finest Bible teacher of his generation anywhere in the world, and he had a massive influence on this fellowship. If you want to appreciate the spiritual DNA of this church, Read David Gooding. He represents better than anyone how this fellowship approaches the scriptures. And we are grateful to God for giving Gooding to us. And one of the people paying tribute to him quoted his comments on the verses we have just read. He said, My eternal security rests on Christ doing the will of the Father. It is the Father's will that he should lose nothing. He will lose none of those that the Father has given him. I can just hear Gooding saying this. I like to think of it with a childlike mind. Imagine the whole assembly of heaven being presented to the Father and counted in by name, so to speak. And when it gets to the end, the Father says, Is that all? Yes. Well, what about that Gooding chap? Is he here? And the son says, Oh, he was a bit of an oddity. 
He lost his way and he's not here. And the father says, But I thought you went to do my will, and my will that you should was that you should lose nothing. So if Christ loses a genuine believer, then he has failed to do the will of God. And that is unthinkable. He will bring home to the Father all who have trusted him. Your eternal security rests on Christ doing the Father's will. I cannot think of a more secure foundation than that. So in this section, verses 35 through 40, Christ has described himself as the bread of life. He is the means for the maintaining of our spiritual life right through life's journey to bring us safe to heaven. Well, you say, that sounds wonderful. But how do I make this offer a reality in my own life? The answer to that question is found in the rest of our passage. In summary, anyone who wants to know Christ as the bread of life must do two things. First, they must recognize him for who he is. And then secondly, they must receive him into their lives. So let's consider the third block in our structure, now verses 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now we've already read the final few verses, so we'll close there. Now the Jews who are grumbling in this section have a massive problem with the Incarnation. They simply cannot understand what the Lord means when he says, I have come down from heaven. We saw this man when he was a ten-year-old running around Nazareth. We know his mother and his sisters and his brothers. How could he possibly have come down from heaven? What does that even mean? If you want Christ to nourish your soul on life's journey to heaven, then you must start by recognizing who he is. In the language of John chapter 1, he is the eternal word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity who has added humanity to himself. But how does someone get to that point? Well, you can't do it on your own. You need God's help if you are to recognize Christ's true identity. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. It takes divine initiative. When Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, our Lord replied, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the process of recognizing Christ's identity requires divine initiative, divine revelation, and divine drawing. And the verses that follow show us how the Father goes about his work. He teaches us about Christ so that we, when we do encounter him, we recognize him for who he is.
Jesus says, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now remember, he's talking to Jewish people here. So think of the Marthas, the Marys, the Andrews, the Nathaniels. Think of Peter, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew. And everybody who was taught of God when Christ came, they came to Christ. Some of them took a bit longer than others. But even among those who first shouted away with him at the cross on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of them got converted and came to the Son. That is the work of the Father who teaches and draws people to Christ. Now let me say this gently and with respect. But there are battalions of theologians who take verse 44 and impose upon it a meaning which is simply not in the text. They read the words that no one comes to the Father, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And they then assert that the Father divides humanity into two groups. There are those he chooses to draw to Christ and those he chooses not to draw. But the text nowhere says that. In fact, if you look at the quotation from Isaiah which follows, the prophet explicitly says that all of his people will be taught by God. Scripture teaches that salvation begins with divine initiative. We all agree on that as a necessary condition. But scripture also teaches that God is not willing that any should perish. The overall teaching of scripture is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will leave no stone unturned in their effort to save you and everyone else. To suggest that God created us and then decided to draw only a percentage of us to Christ is to besmirch the character of God. The arbitrary allocation of mercy based on inscrutable criteria is unjust. In scripture, God's justice is translucent it isn't only done, it is seen to be done. Everyone will see the justice of God's judgment upon themselves. So a more biblical way to understand salvation is to acknowledge that God gave us eyes to see and light to see, but he also, as it were, gave us eyelids. And those who choose to close their eyes to the light are choosing not to recognize who Christ really is. In so doing, they are choosing their own eternal destiny. So if we are to know Christ as the bread of life, we must first recognize Christ for who he really is. God will do everything that he can to teach us and draw us to Christ so that when we do encounter him, we say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Let's now read verses 52 through 58. Actually, for a bit of context, we'll, we'll go back to 51. The Lord Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Lord uses an astonishing metaphor here, doesn't he? It's incredibly vivid. He says that, he talks about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and anyone who does that has eternal life. Now the first thing to say, obviously, is that it is a metaphor. The Lord is not suggesting cannibalism. To be grotesque for a moment, if you could somehow eat the Lord's literal flesh and blood, it wouldn't do you the slightest good. He goes on to say later on in the chapter, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now remember the context here, which is about eating and bread and food. John is saying this. It's not enough to recognize who Jesus is. Salvation only comes when someone receives Christ into their life. Food will do you no good if all you do is look at it. Sometimes a video about a recipe will pop up in my Facebook feed. Now, I suppose I could watch slow-motion videos of cheese melting all day, but it wouldn't nourish me. Food has to be ingested. It has to be appropriated into my body so that it can get to work energizing and nourishing me. And that's what the metaphor means. Here is a totally shocking idea. Christ didn't just come to live on earth. He came to live inside you. You think the incarnation is a shocking idea? Well, listen to these verses. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20 It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. And if you would benefit... You must not just know about me. You must receive me so that you and I become one. So there we have it. John has finished his argument. If you want a nourished soul, an enlivened spirit, an enriched mind, then you must allow the Spirit of Christ to indwell your personality. A Christian is someone who has God's life living inside them. So the journey Christ has taken is not just from heaven to earth. It's the journey into your heart. He wants to take up residence within your personality. Only then can his divine personhood nourish your soul, develop it, enrich it, express the very life of Christ within the fabric of your own unique personality. And that's the difference between a genuine Christian and a cultural Christian. Cultural Christians have no time for talk about an indwelling Spirit of God. And it is this teaching which divides the real disciples from the hangers-on in Jesus' band of followers. And when you get home, you can read about it in verses 60 through 71, the last section of the chapter. When they heard this teaching, many of the hangers-on turned back and no longer walked with him. There's a real moment of pathos as the Lord turns to his real disciples and asks them, do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter, may the Lord bless him.
said those words that every true believer in this gathering would instinctively want to say. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, just before we finish, let's revert to the second miracle recorded in this chapter. We'll read it now, just for our final reading, verses 15 through 21. I've done it in this order, mostly to annoy Tim Graham, who really wishes that I would just go chronologically through the chapter. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. Oh, sorry, we'll start at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat, and started across the lake to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I guess the obvious question is, why would John place these two miracles side by side? If this entire chapter is about how Christ sustains us on the journey through life, what has this account of Jesus walking on water to add to John's thesis? Well, if the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is about Christ's role throughout life's journey, the miracle recorded here is about Christ's role at the end of the journey. Think about it. In verse 15, Christ leaves his disciple, disciples and ascends to the mountain. They are left to fight their way through stormy waters. But then Christ descends once again, returning to them, and miraculously brings them to their final destination. There are times, aren't there, when a Christian church can feel a bit like those disciples in the boat. <laughs> it's getting dark. The wind's against us. We're having to strain at the oars to make even the slightest headway. Sometimes the Lord Jesus can seem far away up in his heaven. But one day he will return and bring us safely to the heavenly shore. And when he does return, the man from heaven will be this same Jesus. So we need have no fear. So now we can see why John has placed these two accounts together. The first miracle teaches us that Christ is the bread of life. By God's grace, we can come to recognize him for who he is. And then we can receive him into our very hearts. His real personal presence brings life and growth into our personalities. Developing and enriching our souls. And as a result of his uh, work inside our personalities, new, real spiritual capabilities will grow. Capacities that will tr transcend the limitations of this old world. You see, one day, brothers and sisters, we will walk on water. Maybe not literally. But in the sense that our spiritual capacities will escape and transcend the limitations and constraints of this fallen world. And so we row on. Until the day comes when the struggles against the waves and the billows draw to a close. Christ will return from heaven to bring us home. That is what John 6 is about. 
in the journey through life, he will hold you fast. Christ is the means for maintaining our spiritual life right through life's journey to bring us safe to heaven. We're going to have a final hymn and then I'll close in prayer.